We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. So I am here with a good friend of mine, the two-time U.S. Women's Champion, Author, editor, poker stars, mind game ambassador, poker player, poker teacher. Did I get all of your roles, Jen? Thank you. Um, yeah, it's great to be on the show. I'm so happy you're doing this. Oh, thank you. And this is Jennifer Shahadi. For those who didn't catch that, uh, yeah, it's it's been fun to do. And as I'm, you know, I should point this out first and foremost. I've, as I've told your dad, without the Shahadis, there's no perpetual chess podcast. So, uh, thank you for you you and your family's role in it. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Great name, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, so, Jen, I have a long list of topics here, but the first thing I want to talk about with you is um, you're kind enough to squeeze me into your schedule to do this interview, um, and you said you're taking off tomorrow or in, in a couple of days to do studio work uh, in St. Louis. So what does uh, your studio work entail? 
Well, the London Chess Classic, the final stop of the Grand Chess Tour, is starting on Thursday. And so the way it works is we've got this amazing studio that was created by um, Spectrum Studios in St. Louis at the Chess Club in the basement. So rather than try to replicate that studio in every Grand Chess Tour stop around the world, we do a lot of the work right there in St. Louis. And then, of course, we also send a team out to London where the event is taking place. Oh, wow. Secrets revealed here. So... <laughs> so what will you so will you be there for the duration of the tournament yes uh-huh I'll oh, be there okay. for, so it'll be like 10 days yeah okay and uh what about maurice and yes i guess they're maurice will be in london and yasser and christian carilla will be in st louis as well as um yvette and alejandro who will be doing the um, spanish broadcast which is a great addition to the whole coverage of the grand gesture Yes. Okay. Nice. So when you're a few days out from an event like this, Jen, like, uh, what do you do? Like, how do you prepare? Well, I spend a lot of time with Fabian. And and (laughs) I also, of course, I try to review um, the the recent games by the players and also the most recent Grand Chess Tour events. So I can just... uh, you know, which has actually been quite a while now, It'll be the Sinkfield Cup and the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz. So, yeah, there's – and usually there's a lot of time in between broadcasts also to kind of like um, bone up on stuff as well. So, yeah, that's uh, there's there's like infinite amount of things to look at because basically there's so much time in those broadcasts to fill. And between me and Maurice and Yasser, we really don't run out of things to talk about. But still, it's it's good to have like – as much uh, news and gossip and, you know, chess knowledge to, you know, throw out there during those shows. Yeah, I mean, chess games are not known for their brevity, these classical games, so you got to be ready. Um, so, and just as an aside, I think uh, 90% of our listeners will know this, but Fabian just is uh, Jen's baby son. So this is not uh, not Fabiano Caruana, as we'll, we'll discuss <laughs> in a little bit, but Jen, um, Jen had a baby uh, last December, um and january 3rd actually oh my my bad um his birthday party will be in december and um yeah so we both have young kids and we've been talking about that and the only reason i didn't harass her sooner to come on the podcast is because of this baby but (laughs) (laughs) yeah now he's now he's fast asleep at night so I, i i've got my um evenings back which is actually just really amazing yeah i feel like you're out of the red zone at least i mean you're you know your baby still could wake up but at least you have a fighting chance at this point (laughs) exactly um nice so so who's um who's in the field for the grand chess tour this time i mean i'm sure i can know a few of the names but i don't know entirely well the magnus carlson and maxime vashir Legrave are the two who are likely to win at this point um magnus is in the clear lead and then um Maxime is just behind him. So it's kind of for the for the tour itself it's kind of like a, a two horse race basically. There's like a very very outside chance that Lavanaronian could win, but like 50 things would have to happen including Magnus losing most of his games. Right. So I wouldn't bet on that. Right, not lately. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's really been just uh, it was amazing, you know, speaking of St. Louis and just being there recently for the Champions Showdown. Um, just the way that Magnus is playing blitz and rapid lately, it's it's uh, it's something to watch. It feels like superhuman, really. Yeah, and it's like he's sending messages. I mean, he, 
you know, I, as I said at the time, I felt like the whole slump thing was overblown to begin with. But um, <laughs> at this point, it seems like he's he's exacting revenge on the board with like everything he does, whether it's Blitz or Classical or anything in between. And then in addition, um, Wesley So, Nakamura, Carolina. So the big American three will be there as well as the uh, the local favorite, Mickey Adams. Oh, fun. Who, yeah, he's a great guy. I'm sure he'd love to be on your um, podcast sometime. So it's yeah, it's it's going to be really exciting to see how it shakes out. So even though, of course, we've only got a couple of people who can win the tour. Um, there's the tournament itself. It's like a tournament within a tournament, which I think is really good. It adds a lot of drama. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I, there's a separate prize for the tour as opposed to the just London Chess Classic itself. Exactly. Yeah. So nice. there's there's those two different races, and sometimes they're both close, and sometimes only one is close. But right. that's that's really good because the round robin can lend to anticlimax. So you double your chances of something exciting happening by making it two tournaments in one. Nice. And I know you've been to London, Jen, but have you been there for the London Chess Classic? Like, has it always been done this way? I have a couple of times actually. They have this big educational conference there. Um, every year um, to kind of bring together people from scholastics from all over the world and people who are doing um, innovative things in chess in the schools. So it was really interesting when I I gave a talk there once about math and chess and whether, you know, you have to be good at math to be good at chess. I think, I think we know the answer to that. What's your answer? No. Oh, good. Just making sure we're on the same page. Okay. Yeah, so definitely not. I mean, unless you kind of think of math very, very broadly as being figures moving in space, which then, like, then yes, but I think of math more as like, I'm, when I think of math, I'm thinking more of like arithmetic and such. Right. Were you good at math? Um, not particularly, yeah. Um, especially not the, the geometry type stuff. No, I never took really any advanced math. I actually had to teach myself some advanced math when I got back into poker, specifically when I started to play um, Chinese poker, because it was unlike No Limit Hold'em, there wasn't a lot of math pre-done on it, because it was a new game. So I had to go and like learn some math so that I could figure out things about the game, which was actually really exciting. And it, it made me really relate to people who learn chess as adults, because even though the deck is stacked against you in terms of terms of becoming like an elite player, of course, there is something really magical about learning these kinds of concepts when you're old enough to appreciate how um, elegant it is, rather than like when you're a kid, it, you, it's just kind of like you suck it in and you're not really rationalizing or understanding how how cool it is. So trying to make a positive out of this that like, right. yes, it's hard to become like a chess master and beyond when you're older. But there, there are some cool things that you get out of learning things when you're an adult that you don't get when you're a kid. Right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, poker is on the list of topics to talk about. Um, but something relating to poker and Chinese poker, and I know you've uh, had some success at open face Chinese poker as well. Um, but with poker, like, yes, there's math. Um, and I, you know, I read the mathematics of poker or attempted to read it and couldn't follow it really. But I don't feel like it's the same thing as like learning to calculate as an adult in chess. Like, because you, if you understand the math in poker, you don't need to necessarily be able to generate like super complex math. Whereas like to become, um, you know, very strong at chess, there's no getting around being able to like visualize, you know, long sequences do you do you agree with this uh assessment of mine 
Not 100% because I do think that to become an elite poker player, there is some kind of corollary that you need to be able to like visualize your opponent's range very quickly as opposed to just being able to do like, which, you know, you could do because you're good at math and, you know, counting combos or it could just be because you've played so many hands that it kind of comes naturally to you. So I think especially these days when poker is becoming a little bit more like chess in the amount of work that people put in, I think it's a little bit more similar maybe than when you played and... It was uh, less rigorous, the training that people put in. Wow. Put, throw in shade on my, uh, my long ago poker career. No, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I get no, that. I mean- <laughs> I, I, it's okay. I'm not sensitive, but I get that. But what, uh, what I would say about that is like they take forever. I mean, <laughs> there's no, I mean, with a few exceptions and a few events, there's no clocks. So it's not like you need to be like, your mind doesn't need to be firing super fast. Like you need to be able to figure stuff out, but you can sit there and like, and they do sit there for like, you know, five, 10 minutes per decision. So it's not like you need to instantly assess uh, a person's range. You just need to be able to figure it out. Yeah. I don't know though, because if you sit there for two, maybe on the river, like if it's the actions on you, you can just sit there and try to figure out like what you should do. But and other streets, you know, you, you kind of might give away a lot of information if you just sit there for three minutes count, manually counting all their combos. But, you know, I wasn't trying to insult you, Ben. I know you were really, like, very successful in poker. I think actually in a way, like, if you were playing poker now, it would almost, like, even though it's, like, tougher, so it might not be as profitable, but it would actually, like, suit your mind, like, in a way even more. Because I see these, like, programs now that poker players use to um you know become really good and they're just so similar to chess and uh poker some poker players are just not comfortable with that they have difficulty like getting in there and like using like the poker version of chess base interesting so like tell us a little bit more about them well they're basically like uh they're like they call them like solvers so right okay i've seen you tweet about them yeah yeah you put all the information in about a hand and you get like the, you get like a computer solution, or like a game theory optimal solution, which tells you like what you should do, um, assuming that your opponent is playing perfectly, and you can adjust the the counter strategy and like if if they're not actually playing optimally, so you can like play around with it a lot. But I think really what chess players would gain from it is they would understand its limitations better because like poker players sometimes go in and they think that those programs are like a magic bullet. Whereas for me, I I see like how looking at engine analysis can actually like destroy somebody's brain rather than make them better. So going in with a like healthy dose of skepticism is, is basically like the first step. Nice. Okay. So that's, that's good advice. And I guess that's, that's a bit reassuring. And actually, you know, Jen, you and I are both, uh, residents of Pennsylvania and you work for poker stars. So I imagine you're fairly excited about the fact that online poker is coming to Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. That's just amazing. Especially with a baby. I mean, it's like, it couldn't be more perfect. I remember when I found out about that, I was in Kansas city, um, giving a talk and it was just like a couple other good random things happened to me that day and I was like just ah oh, this is the best day ever I love it when that happens you know like a cascade of good news nice so I ran through the possibility that the reason that you were excited uh, with a baby particularly about this is because you were going to teach Fabian poker but, <laughs> but no actually it's because you can spend time with him without traveling to play I realized 
Yeah, absolutely. And you can play poker when he goes to bed. And right. That's perfect. In your, in your, in your like, uh, in my office while he, while I'm watching him on the uh, little baby cam. Nice. Yeah, I might have to uh, dust off some cobwebs and attempt to play some poker. We'll see how it goes. Um, oh, it'll go well. I, I, I'm making a bold prediction that it'll go well. <laughs> interesting. Um, I mean, you've been to New Jersey and you've played there, so you think uh, you think it'll be comparable to that. I mean, yes. obviously, obviously, you've been to New Jersey, but yeah, it's very different. You know, Poker Stars New Jersey, especially in the beginning, these these uh these player pools. You got to understand, there are people who haven't played a lot of online poker in the last like eight years. Even pre Black Friday, you know, wasn't like uh, people didn't feel that comfortable with it sometimes. Um, so I I think definitely. Yeah. Okay. So Black Friday, for anyone who doesn't know, is in 2011 uh, when the government suddenly shut down all of the poker sites and many people's uh, careers and lives were suddenly thrown into chaos, uh, myself included, as well as Jen. Yeah. Yeah. Me, it's funny. Like at that time, I was actually like kind of like getting more serious about poker, but I still wasn't like not professional on any level. Um, It was just like kind of like a sideline. And I've actually become way more serious about it since then, signing with Poker Stars even, which is like the exact opposite arc of almost uh, all of my friends from chess who've kind of given it up. But yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I remember like when your brother Greg and I and other friends of ours, uh, when we were getting into it, I was always surprised that you didn't have more interest, although you were like busy winning U.S. championships and stuff. So you had a good excuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, first listener question, Jen, speaking of poker. So while we're on the topic, um, this is from Saratam Sanai. And for those who don't know how this works, people who have donated to help support the podcast, whether on Patreon or PayPal, get to send in questions to the guests um, after they receive word of who it will be. And we've got a few that we'll be sprinkling in here, Jen. But this one is, uh, what would you give as the Texas Hold'em or Creative? Uh, rating equivalent <laughs> let me start that again what would you give us the Texas Hold'em rating equivalent like chess rating to the following players Phil Ivey Negreanu Helmuth Brunson and I'm gonna skip the last two but <laughs> let's go with those four. Oh my god that's so hard okay well I guess I guess we'll, well put Ivy's, Ivy. Ivy's not gonna listen so you, you can say anything you want about him I anyway go ahead <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I'd put Ivy at the top, you know, 2,800, I guess, the highest that the highest level there is. Although and they then, do ask just hold him. So I'm not sure if he has an edge over. Oh, like oh, they said they said just hold him. I didn't hear that part. OK, sorry. Um, yeah, I guess I guess in that case, um, I'd put uh, it. You know, it's really hard to say they're all they're all like uh, elite, though, especially when you're talking about playing in poker is so different than chess because it's not like the London chess classic where all the elite players only play amongst each other. Um, a lot of times they get to play against, um, you know, people who are complete amateurs or just play for fun. And all of those players that you listed, particularly Daniel Negreanu and um, Phil Helmuth are going to be particularly um, just uh, outstanding at playing against amateurs, like the best. Yes. You know? Yeah. Very good Whereas, at it. Yeah, if if they're playing against like a German high roller who's basically used um, solvers to look at every possible flop and you know bet sizing and counter strategy, you know they might actually be an underdog. And, and I mean they they especially um, Phil Helmuth, who I think is he is in, uh, doesn't play them even as regularly as Daniel Negreanu. So it's really tricky, you know. Yeah, and I know Negreanu got a lot of attention recently for saying like. 
he no longer considers himself one of the best tournament players in the world, and that's something that he needs to work on. Exactly, but then at the same time, it's still the case that he would be much higher um, price in the main, the World Series of Poker main event with 5,000 players and any of the uh, German high rollers pretty much, most of them at least, because just of the fact that he is going to be so intimidating to amateur players and that amateur players are going to give so much information away to him. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so yeah, I think it's it's kind of hard because there's no... I don't know. I mean, this is my perspective. The question is for you. But like the baton gets passed of like who the like the the tournament player of the year, the card player player of the year is like a different person basically every year. Whereas, uh, you know, and people have had some amazing runs over time, but it still shifts kind of back and forth a lot more than Magnus just being on top looking down at everyone. So I feel like the ratings would be clustered, you know, much closer together. Yes, exactly. Do you have any advice? Let's say someone's listening and they're younger, so they you know, didn't live through the poker boom. What advice would you give to a chess player who's thinking about taking it up as a hobby? Um, it seems that chess players might be more adept. You know, I have not really gotten that much in PLO, but it seems like that might even be a better fit for chess players because there's a lot of uh, math involved. And I guess there, there are still more newcomers to that game coming in. So you might not have as much of a loss of experience. So I think it might be a good way to get started, um, to, to, to think about starting with PLO and Hold'em, not just Hold'em. Okay, and that's pot, and li- also, pot Limit Omaha for anyone who didn't know. Yeah, and then also to uh, to look at all the free content out there. There's so much stuff that Poker Stars is putting out, and you know, there's this very popular YouTube channel with Doug Polk. There's a lot of really good free information out there. And you, obviously the big one is to just find out a way to play online. If you're lucky enough to be in a place where you can play Poker Stars, that's great. But you really have to play online to get hands and get practice. Okay. And what's your, like, I know you do some events for Poker Stars in New Jersey and stuff like that, but, like, what's your general poker, like, life now? Like, how often are you studying? How much are you spending on Chinese poker versus um, Hold'em and tournaments and stuff like that? Well, I don't play Chinese poker that much anymore because I felt like uh, the game, the game uh, I loved it, but uh, I didn't feel like it was good to play anymore because I had a sense that there were some solutions out there. Um, and that does, it doesn't mean that I, like, you know, the thing is you can still play games like that because it's still a matter of like somebody making a human error. Like, right. but I, I didn't feel like it was uh, super profitable anymore. Like I used to think it was. And then, uh, but I love the game. Hopefully there will come out some new formats to it, um, so that I can get back into it. And uh, I do do a lot of studying, and then I I play in like Poker Stars tournaments when I can, and of course I'm very looking forward to the Poker Stars PA coming. So like no limit hold'em tournaments, you would say are your main main area of focus mm-hmm. right now? Yeah, yeah. I also like heads up because it reminds me of chess. You know, I I really like uh, just the one on one battle. Yeah, that is something that in in my seven year poker career that is something i never worked on that really held me back like i would have been a much better poker player like not just heads up but like in all aspects if i had done the work that a lot of the the wizards did um on the math of playing one-on-one yeah and it it really is very suited to the chess player yeah yeah low-hanging fruit but 
Oh, wow. Because Good. me as like I, as a social person, I sometimes have difficulty with like the um, the full ring game because it's like it's not clear whether I'm having fun or I'm battling, you know, and then sometimes when those lines get blurred, I start having too much fun. Which is, I mean, which is also great, right? It's good to go play poker and have fun. And live poker is soft enough that even if I'm not, like, zoned in, it's still going to be, like, probably a profitable opportunity, right? Right. But it, it's nice just to know when you're playing heads up that it's not about fun, that you're just trying to tear tear the guy's head off. <laughs> right, you know, I, yeah. that, that is really, like, chess, and it's uh, there's something really nice about that. There's no confusion. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's a good point. Um, okay, so speaking of chess, let's get back to it. So as we record this, the candidates for next year are, is finally set. Um, we've got Karyak and Aronian, Ding Liren, Mamadyarov, Grishik, Caruana, So, and Kramnik. And I fact-checked that before I said that on like a previous episode uh, and everything. So, Jen, um, how do you handicap this? Oh, gosh, yeah. I think I saw something from uh, that website. Um, Oliver Roeder is constantly writing for like 538, oh, 538 about yeah. Right. Yeah. So I peaked, but um, I I still got to really like um, Fabi and uh, So's chances. Um, obviously, I'm a little biased, but I I think uh, I, I think he had them as like 17 percent each. Uh huh. And then um, I believe it was like Levon who had a better chance than anyone. I believe. Yeah. So how but do you? I like I like I think I would take the bet on. Um, on so or caruana um, qualifying at two to one. That's a fun bet. I would take yeah. that bet. We'll be back with more in a minute, but first I wanted to let you guys know that this episode of Perpetual Chess is brought to you by chessuniversity.com. For those of you looking to improve your chess in the near future, and who doesn't want to get better at chess, Chess University is offering a special discount to Perpetual Chess listeners. Right now, if you head to chessuniversity.com, you can get an additional 20% off any recorded course in their online store. That includes courses by former world champions Anatoly Karpov and Vichy Anand. Those guys know something about chess. It also includes courses by previous Perpetual Chess guests, I am Nazi Pekidzi and I am Kostya Kovutsky. The various courses range from beginner level all the way up to 2200 level, and they typically combine multiple hours of video lectures along with additional puzzles and exercises for solving. These courses are already discounted for the holiday season, but for a limited time only, you can get an additional 20% discount by using the promo code PERPETUAL at checkout. So you go to chessuniversity.com, and then when you check out, you type in PERPETUAL, P-E-R-P-E-T-U-A-L, and then you get a 20% discount. It's a great way to support the podcast while working on your path to chess mastery. Chess University is also known for their Prodigy program, a monthly all-inclusive coaching program that includes many live classes from world-renowned coaches, such as five-time world champion Vichy Anand, Carlson's trainer and second GM Peter Hein Nielsen, former perpetual chess guest GM Alex Yermolinsky, and I am Lawrence Trent, plus FM Dalton Perrine, and number one selling online coach Karav Joshi. So what are you waiting for? Visit chessuniversity.com and use the promo code PERPETUAL during checkout to save 20% on your first course. Okay, back to the show. So how, how do you like account for whether someone is like, quote unquote, in form? Because, you know, so I feel like so may have like, so and Fabiano both actually may have had like the highest heights in recent years, but... I don't feel like like Aronian is coming in red hot. You know, he's coming in winning every tournament, and it seems like he's like 
near his peak at the right time. So do you think that matters or not? Oh, I think it probably matters. But then at the same time with form, I think with something like, sometimes it feels a bit random, but with the candidates, it's pretty clear that every single player is going to be really, really focused on trying to be in good form. And then there's obviously like randomness. Right. Like, you know, having a tough first round game, which might throw you off or feeling a little sick or jet lag. Yeah, walking but, into preparation. Yeah, but I do think that they're, they're, it's a slightly different with something like the candidates, just knowing that everybody's like um, trying harder than usual to be in the top form. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited that Ding Liren and Mamad Yarov in particular are in there because it's, you know, uh, new faces and... Uh, I feel like they have as good a chance as anyone. I feel like it's a, uh, I saw in an interview, Aronian said that he, no one in the field has higher than a 30% chance, um, which oh. I thought was true, but very level-headed of him to say. Oh yeah, that definitely sounds true to me. I mean, that would be crazy if somebody had more than a 30% chance. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, Ding Loren, yeah, I, I, I just think he's phenomenal to watch. And that's why it was kind of bittersweet to watch him get mauled so badly against Magnus Carlsen because it's just like I really think it was an unlucky seat more than anything else. I just think any player in the world was going to get mauled by Magnus in that form. Yeah. I mean, did you see the way he played? It was crazy. I didn't get a chance to check out the games yet. I read the recap on chess.com. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And then he followed it up with a speed chess with, with like similar, um, you know, crushes. I guess the score against Grishuk wasn't so lopsided, but he really, he really uh, killed Wesley Sell. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it, it's shocking. <laughs> I mean, it'll be interesting how it translates to classical because when he did uh, get interviewed after that, um, after a couple bad tournaments, he was saying like, there's no issue in, in action and faster. He just felt like his edge was sort of receding in the slower game. So we'll, uh, we'll find out, I guess. Okay. So Jenna, in, in preparation for this interview, um, I, uh, went back and reread your book that I hadn't read since you wrote it. I mean, you wrote two books, but chess bitch, which came out in 2005 and you wrote play like a girl, which is like a tactics book meant to, um, in inspire young girls. Uh, and there was a lot that I didn't like that I had forgotten that you written, but one thing was like, um, you really get into sort of the lifestyle of different players. So almost uh, in a similar vein to this podcast, um, you know, you talk about which, like, you know, what uh, players, both historically and current players at the time's personalities were like uh, away from the board, whether they like to go to the disco and stuff like that. So I, I had a few follow-up questions about that, but one is like, um, did you get any blowback from people for like writing about people's personal lives or have you in your announcing um let's see uh, a little bit about um mostly just about the title that was really the only thing like some people didn't know that it was going to be called chess bitch and then they were like upset that they were interviewed and I, I i think that maybe i interviewed some people before i decided on the title so i'm not sure like that that uh that uh, obviously I didn't really feel guilty about it. I do think there was a little bit of a mistranslation because apparently the um, translation of chess bitch in some languages is a lot more vulgar than it is in America. In America, we're already starting to use the word bitch kind of like in a lot of feminist contexts as like reclaiming it, whereas that did not really translate so well into some languages. So I kind of I kind of sympathize with why people are upset about it. 
like apparently in a lot of other places it kind of more translated as like chess prostitute oh wow yeah yeah whereas in america you know there's bitch magazine there's like several other feminist books that use the word bitch in a reclaiming way so um bitch magazine is like a pretty pretty uh pretty radical feminist magazine based from the west coast which i i used to really like um it's still around and uh, then there was a few other books with the bitch in their title that also had that same same kind of vibe. So that was just definitely the main negative feedback I got. So any regrets about the title or no? No, not at all. Because I just think it was it was a really I think it was a great title. I mean, it got it got attention and it made a point. And so I guess if anything, maybe the t- the regret would be perhaps. Um, thinking about that trans translation issue and like maybe addressing it in the book. Uh-huh. Yeah, I I guess. I feel like that, you know, the one line like people always just fixate on the title. They they're not they're not looking to dig deeper. So even if you had explained it, I feel like people wouldn't have been like, "Oh, okay." They would have still wanted to yell and scream. Yeah, maybe. That's possible, yeah. um so you think you'll have you do have another book in you jen what do you think oh absolutely i mean writing in some ways really um like my uh my biggest love in some ways i really like just love writing and i love good books and i love like coming up with a structure and like you know refining writing until uh the uh the fat is all cut out and there's more story and more color and less blah 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 just really one of the most satisfying things you don't feel like it's like an endless grind i guess it's i guess it feels very unpleasant when you don't have the structure yet and you don't have enough material then it's pretty like grind but once you actually have like a lot of stuff to write about i think it's very very pleasurable to see it kind of you know winnow into something um better you know, like write, writing something that's like better than what you're capable of saying in a normal conversation. I think that's just really satisfying because it's basically a better version of yourself. Because if I'm just like talking um, at a cafe to somebody, I'm trying to be interesting and give them good advice. But because I'm not able to think through everything I'm saying, some of it's just kind of like hogwash or repetitive. And so you cut all that fat away and you write. That's that's just a that's really wonderful to me. Yeah, I mean, I was your book holds up well. I'll tell you that much. I was I really oh, enjoyed thanks. rereading it. Um, so, do you have like specific topics in mind? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm like something something kind of merging family memoir with life advice. As you know, my my family is pretty um, pretty fun and uh, uh, unusual. So I thought, like, especially nowadays with. Um, so many people realizing how important it is to have multiple revenue streams and like, you know, not just rely on like one job. I think that kind of message that like the shahadis are always doing like four or five different things, not just like focused on one project. I think like kind of kind of showcasing that and talking about like the pitfalls and why it works and how to make it work is going to be really useful to people. Wow, that sounds great. And you just hit like six topics that I have follow-up questions on. So let's see if I can if I can hit them all. I mean, I want to talk about your family a little bit, but also I one of the things I wanted to mention was, you know, I've I've known you since like what I mean, it's we're going to have to stumble through this if we actually try to pinpoint the year, but uh since you were in 6th grade or something like that, thereabouts. 
and I was a few years older. Um, and I, you know, like a lot of chess players, I was, I was pretty shy as a kid. You were pretty shy as a kid. And then you started to get a lot of attention as you ascended the chess world. And then you just became like this, like huge professional in everything you do. And I, you know, uh, we used to live in the same city and get to see each other a lot more, but like, I was curious generally, like how you learn to present yourself and be an advocate for yourself. Um, so without giving away too much of the content of your book, do you have any general advice or recollections about that? Oh God, it just feels like it's one, it was like, it, like small improvements along the way. You know, like there's so many things that I wasn't good at naturally. And I just kind of like looked at people who were good at it and got better. Like whether it's like public speaking, which I feel like I've had lots of ups and downs on. Um, and you know, I still like prepare a lot when I have to give a talk or a speech in general, but it, if I have to cold go through it, I'm like, I'm not as lost as I used to be just like all these little things to like, you know, um, to, to, to dressing, to, uh, just interacting with people. Some things came naturally to me, but like a lot, not so much. Okay. So how do you improve your public speaking? Public speaking, um, there's a great article by the guy who has this blog called wait, but why? Oh yeah. That guy's uh, a about. Yeah, he's really good, and he he writes about how he had to give a TED talk, and there's different approaches depending on what kind of talk you're giving. Like when I gave my TED talk, I basically just memorized the speech, the, like front to bottom, so well that I could like say it twice in the shower. Wow. And I, you know, just every word, like I would just, I just could say it, like out, I roll out of bed and I could say it. You know, just like pull a string and it comes out. But of course, that's not usually realistic because you don't usually have like an entire month to craft and memorize a speech. So normally you have to take a more, a low risk approach where like you're not going to like mess up royally, but you're also not going to like memorize every word. Like that's ridiculous. Right. So normally you take more of like an outline approach when you have something that's important, but not so important that you have to memorize every word. So I guess you kind of have to think about like how much time you have and the stakes and then decide whether you're going to go for like the full fledged, let's just like make this perfect or um, kind of like tone it down a little bit. And the, the thing about toning it down a little bit and not memorizing every word is that actually sometimes that can be better. It's just a little bit riskier because right. it could be better or it could kind of flop, right? It, it, it couldn't, like, if you just try to cold do it, then you have the chance of just completely flopping. So that's like really risky. But if it's kind of like you, you give yourself like an in-between out um, most of the time where if you're in the zone, maybe it'll be like a fantastic speech. But if it if it isn't working, then you just kind of like rely on your outline and at least it's not going to be like horrible. OK, um, that's so a bit of improv involved. But I guess like with experience, you'll you'd get better at that as well. Um Okay. And what about the business side? Like, you know, if someone wants you to make an appearance somewhere, I don't, you know, you don't have anyone like making, you don't have an agent, you know? So how did you figure out like, like what to ask for and what you needed and when offers are attractive and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, it's always good to have somebody mentoring you on those things. Even if you don't have an agent, always try to ask for advice. Like, People like to we like we in America we create a lot of shame around around money and like talking about money like it's not okay to do but actually it's like always really good if people try to like uh, share information with their friends about like what they're charging for chess lessons or appearances 
because um, then you guys can kind of like if one of you is undercharging, you can like adjust that. And that's actually good for the other person, too, because then their student's not going to like, you know, go to the other person. Right. So I think just like, you know, try to reach out to people um, and and find out and, and get advice. And, you know, always just like you had you had one of my favorite people. Um, well, favorite uh, writers, bloggers, James Altucher on the show. And he's got so much good advice about this kind of stuff. Yeah. That you should always just try to provide a lot of value um, and say no a lot also. Like, don't try to fight it. If there's an opportunity and, like, the, the cost isn't that high and you don't really want to do it, then don't do it. If I, I, I always tell poker players this because poker players are, like, not very good with this kind of thing. They, um, they Somebody asked them to coach them. And, you know, they charge, like, some reasonably hourly rate. But then the the coach doesn't want to do it. And I'm like, well, what's your hourly? And they're like, oh, you know, it's like 200 an hour. And I'm like, but how much time are you really spending for that one hour to like look over the person's hand histories and then like figure out what to tell them and stuff? And they're like, oh, yeah, like maybe like three or four hours. And I'm like, yeah, that's why you don't want to do it. Like, right. obviously. So either raise your rates or tell, t- talk to the person honestly about how much work you're putting in and then, you know, make sure they understand that they have to pay for that as well. Yeah, that's that's good advice and obviously applies like you said to to poker and chess alike. I mean in in poker the, the opportunity cost might be higher because you know the people who are profitable poker players make a quite high hourly rate just playing poker whereas in chess sort of for most people like the teaching is the business but still you you have to account for you know if you're going somewhere you have to account for travel time and if you're just preparing you have to account for for prep time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's super helpful. So this, this brings up another question I had on my list, which is like, when you do have a chess student, what's your general, like, what's your general approach? Uh, how do you try to help your chess students? Well, I I think a lot of times I have a few adult students and I think there's just so many psychological issues with adult students that, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very important to address. Like, I always encourage people to um, journal and write things down, um, whether if they use longhand, that's great. Uh, but otherwise, just try to describe things to themselves in their own words. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really important because otherwise, I think a lot of times, like, studying of an opening just kind of, like, washes over and it's hard to memorize it. So that's one thing I, I really try to instill. And then, of course, also the the very hard work of just making sure that you're visualizing and um, doing some, like, hard, heavy lifting, right? Like, if you're training in chess and it doesn't feel difficult, then maybe you're not doing it right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good advice. So, like, you you do you select materials for your students, like tactics and stuff like that, Um beyond looking at their games or like how do you know that they're how do you make sure that they're doing something that pushes them yeah sometimes i select the homework and then also give assignments like writing making uh chess based files for certain openings so that i can like see that they're doing it uh um that, those would be some of the things i would do yeah okay sounds and good i don't have but you know i'm so busy with poker and chess i really only have a few students you know i don't really do a lot of chess teaching i love doing like special guest lectures for girls and i do that in philadelphia sometimes and also like if i get invited to do stuff like that i'm more inclined to say yes because i think it's really important to kind of encourage the next generation um whether it's like philadelphia kids or girls in general 
But yeah, it doesn't take, it's not like a huge percentage of my time, which is actually nice because it means that I really still enjoy it a lot. Right. But I know that in the past you've, you know, you've done some coaching at uh, 318 and places like that. So I know that oh, even, yeah. even though you might not be like as active as before, I'm sure you've got some wisdom, um, which, you know, of course, Jenna, I know you've listened to this podcast some, so you know, I have to ask you about uh, chess books. Any, any books that you find yourself recommending a lot? Yeah, I like the uh, the, the books uh, Forcing Moves, um, which is kind of like a re a redo of uh, Think Like a Grandmaster, which is also a great book, but maybe even more advanced than Forcing Moves. And I really like uh, the new series of books by uh, Judith Pogar. I think they're phenomenal. It's so, so inspiring for young girls as well, and for anyone though, not just girls. Uh, it's really great. Her books are really like a little bit more. I'd say. I just say like they're a little bit more accessible than some games collections I felt like there's more diagrams and easier to follow variations rather than feeling like it's geared towards 2400 plus, which I really liked. Yeah, I was just raving about them to Tatyov in uh, the last episode. So, uh, oh, I didn't get to listen to that. OK, well, I'll, um, I'll have to... it's, it's a funny coincidence. But anyway, so I won't spend more time raving. But now you now you guys have heard it twice. Well, you know, they say that somebody has to hear something like six or seven times until they actually go out and buy something. Right, so. exactly. Well, that, I think uh, Jakob Allgaard has hit that level on this podcast. I'm not sure <laughs> if any of the other authors have yet. But uh, okay, so that that's good advice on chess improvement. And getting back to your family a little bit, speaking of chess improvement. So, I mean, I got to witness it firsthand a little bit because, you know, shout out to Mr. Shahadi. Um, he, you know, he bro- took me under his wing a little bit in, in life as in chess. And, you know, so in addition to helping you and Greg helped me. And I remember like going through pawn power with him and Greg and us like cracking jokes about like leukopenia and stuff like that. And then, you know, eventually Greg hit a point where, where he was too strong to work with me, which was a, you know, sad but true. Um, so what is the secret sauce in the, the Shahadi family? How did you guys, um, like, what are the main factors that contributed to your success in chess? Well, I think directing me into the right, because uh, my dad is not really a, um, a what, not like the coach type guy, like teacher, but he would really instill that um, in order to get to the next level, I just had to do more tactics and, you know, really, really be able to visualize better and, um, you know, I think that that's something that's still true and using tactics trainers is great. Sometimes it really helps to also use books or a board because of the different dimensions. And another thing I really like to do, which I think helped is if I got a tactic wrong, I would kind of like do this like mind trick where I would like pretend I would, I hadn't seen it. And then like somehow my brain was now seeing the right solution so kind of like modeling like five minutes ago, like, oh, I couldn't see that, but now I can. And I, I think that's really useful as well. Yeah. And, you, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of listeners are familiar with, you know, your announcing and your personality, but they might not know like your chess style was like just fierce attacker. Like, and, you know, I, I sort of saw it like firsthand, saw you sort of, um, you know, your rating went up from like 1600 to 2100 in like one year or something when you were, you know, probably uh, ninth or 10th grade or something. But in any event, like the tactics really worked because your games were very entertaining. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, the one negative of that kind of style is that it really it really requires more upkeep. You know, like it's harder to like like sometimes I do, I like to, I do like to play blitz and I like to play like a blitz tournament or a rapid tournament. But it would be much easier like if I had like a more tame style because then I could just like go back to it. Whereas it's like harder to just like you know go back and play like the open Sicilian. Right. Yeah. And speaking of which, that was another question I had relating to chess bitch, um, which, you're, you know, the last line uh, in the book, you say you're you pass you're passing the move to other young girls and you don't you don't play slow chess much anymore. So I was I was curious, like when you wrote that, did you already know that you were probably going to be stepping back from playing as actively? I don't know if I knew for sure, but I think like I was really I was really in love with writing from that. And I think I felt like I I didn't, I, I wasn't like, uh, I always, I love chess, but maybe not quite enough to spend all of my time on it anymore. Yeah. So I think competitive that, that's chess, a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You have to really be very passionate about it to want to like spend all of your time on it. And I was, I still really loved the game, but maybe not like quite enough at, at first for a few, for like maybe five to 10 years, I really did love it that much. But then at some point it was like, I still loved it, but there was like these other things that I really liked too. And it was like kind of hard to go back to like trying to think about chess 24 seven. Right. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's ways to contribute to the chess culture without being, you know, the, the gladiator out on the battlefield, you know, as you do it with, uh, with your talking and your announcing and teaching and everything else. But I was just curious because I, I hadn't caught that the first time I read it. And at the time, you know, when I read it, when it came out, you were still playing a lot, but it turned out that, that you kind of did a mic drop <laughs> after winning uh, the, the U.S. championship twice. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and of course, I got into poker some a few years later from that as well, which also probably like contributed to like wanting to do other things as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you don't think um, no return to the U.S. championships as a player is imminent for you, it's safe to say? Probably not. You know, I mean, it's uh, for me, it would really require like a lot of work and energy. Like I really put everything into these things. Like I said, because of my style, I would like just put like all of my energy like the month before and the month after I'd be like dead for several weeks. So I would think that like I'd have to really be like, um, you know, maybe if I won like the World Series or something, possibly. I would I would think like if I won like you know ten million dollars in the World Series like obviously with backing and taxes it would go down a little bit but like if I were to win like really a lot of money in poker maybe I would consider playing the championship again or something just just enough so that I wouldn't like even be worried about Fabian's education at all right that's just funny it's, yeah. <laughs> Because it's like for some people, I think it would be fine. They just like study chess a few hours a day. But I think for me, it would it would have to just be like just that, you know? Yeah. Well, you're you know, you're a competitive person, but you also write in the book very openly about like the nerves. You know, it's these these tournaments are nerve wracking. Um, and it's it's easy to forget that when you're watching that, the, the, like, especially with the engine on, it's easy to forget like these these are humans who are like, you know, going through massive emotional swings and like the trends of the game. Um and it, you know, it's a, uh, it's it's a tough game. Oh, definitely, the nerves are are, are really intense for sure. Um, okay, so uh, I have another listener question for you here, um, Jen. This is from Rick Holland. Uh, he says, "You always seem to have great energy, enthusiasm for chess, and life in general. How do you maintain your enthusiasm for chess? What do you do to prevent from burning out?" So, somewhat related. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I guess it's because I really, I really do have other interests. So when I um, get back to chess, uh, it does, it does uh, kind of like uh, have that kind of excitement for me. Um, uh, but in general, I just, I feel like it's, it's the best way to live to be optimistic and enthusiastic about things. Because otherwise, I, I like, I don't, I know that like the kind of like self help speak about being positive is sometimes irritating to people but people like your brother (laughs) i do find that it's very important being positive about stuff even myself if i look back at some of my mistakes in my career i feel like it would maybe it would be better if i was like more positive and more excited about things sometimes and it's funny because people think of me as already really positive and excited and i'm like i wish i'd been even more confident and positive about stuff huh okay uh that's that's interesting um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think, uh, staying fresh, like different activities definitely helps. Um, and yeah, I mean, also you, you have a good job. I mean, you do an amazing job at it, so you, you, you deserve it. But like, I mean, it is, it seems to me it is exciting, like to get to have a ringside view, um, of like, uh, watching these, these chess Titans collide amongst, amongst your other, uh, roles in life. Yeah, it really is fun, the, the commentary in St. Louis and just working with such an amazing team. Like the behind the scenes um, crew are so great. Like actually Rex's son, Randy, runs Spectrum Studios, um, but his his team is just so – everybody has this just like very nice attitude. Like they're all like really fun and really um, upbeat and that really helps. The the no asshole rule is like 100% in effect in um, the uh, – coverage of the championships nice that that's good to hear because a lot of assholes are being uncovered in the media recently so uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm glad it doesn't uh doesn't apply to your co-workers um okay another listener question this one is from supporter of the podcast uh mike klein So you you know it's going to be a joke (laughs) okay i'm bracing myself right so mike says uh you ended up naming your son Fabian, just a little shy of Fabiano. Without getting too far into Freud or the subconscious, can you tell us how seriously you considered Hikar or Gat or Bob, B-O-B-B? And can we safely assume your first girl will be Nas, N-A-Z? <laughs> well, well, what about what about Yifan or Judith? Yeah, that's um, Judy, I guess it would be, <laughs> Yeah, you know, some people, yeah, some people ask me, a lot of people have asked me about that. Like, how, did I want, you know, did I name Fabian after Fabiano? And the answer is really yes and no. Uh, the way the way it happened was, uh, you know, legend had it that when my brother Gregory was born, that my dad really wanted to call him Anatoly. That's why my mom said she's passed so she can no longer tell her side of the story. Right. My dad always insisted that it was a joke, that he didn't want to call Gregory Anatoly Shahadi. That just doesn't really have a ring to it, right? Right. So it was kind of like every Thanksgiving, we would, this, this topic would come up and, you know, dad would insist it was a joke and mom would say, no, you really tried to call him Anatoly. So um, fast forward to when I was pregnant, I, I called up dad um, when we found out the gender of the baby and said, well, we've narrowed down the names to Magnus and Fabiano. Um, you know, this was our clever way of explaining that it was a boy. Right. And so he was excited, uh, you know, and we hung out the phone and then we were just like, wait a second, like Fabi, like we just kept, we just kept using this name Fabi, um, 
for the next like few months when I was in Vegas playing the WSOP, like he would text me like, how's Fabi doing? And after that, it was all gone. It was like, we couldn't, we couldn't backtrack because Fabi was just like such a cool name. Nice. Yeah. And it suits him. I mean, he's, he's little guy has personality for sure. So. Yeah. And you know, Fabian, we did drop the O because we're not, we don't have any Italian heritage, but like it, it, we were really thrilled with it. So nice. And how's um? What's your uh? You know, thirty thousand foot view on motherhood generally. Now that you're almost a year into it. Oh, it's great. It's much better than I expected. I was. I guess that's one thing that maybe I was referring to. Like, even though I seem enthusiastic and positive on the outside, like obviously, like sometimes that masks um, ennui and uh, cynicism right? Like you're putting it on to hide things. And I would say that in terms of something like motherhood, I was very cynical. Like I thought that pregnancy was going to suck and that the first year was going to be like, so like boring. And that I was going to like regret being at home instead of being at poker tournaments. Well, I mean, all of this was just in that I wouldn't want to travel with the baby because it would just be such a pain. I mean, everything I thought was just so wrong. I mean, literally I was wrong about everything and not just wrong by a little bit. Like, I was just completely, like, you know, 180 degrees wrong. Yeah. I I, I loved being pregnant. I loved traveling with Fabi. Like, I mean, of course, like, you know, we're – we have, like, a lot of advantages. Uh, Like, we live in – like, we live in a nice city and we have a lot of time with Fabi at home and we have family around. So I'm not saying, like, it's always great for everyone. Like, I didn't have to worry about health insurance and, like, some of the extra costs that are incurred with like the terrible insurances that are often available these days. But um, it's been great for me. So uh, this is why, why didn't, do you have health insurance? Like, <laughs> I'm just curious because you are self-employed. So do you have it through the exchange or um, some oh, other? Oh, I have it through the U.S. Chess Federation. Actually. Oh, right. Yeah. It's U.S. But Chess there's, there's... Editor, of course. But, uh, and web... I'm, not, I'm not slamming their health insurance. I mean, they, we, we have a really good program considering, um, you know, that it's a very small organization. It's just the, it's just the state of the country now. Yeah, for sure. No, a lot of money. <laughs> no, my wife and I are both, both self-employed and we, uh, we just re-upped our health insurance. Um, and the same package was like $500 a month more <laughs> than, than the one prior. So, yeah, yes. I mean, and that's not like that's far from ideal, but like where there are other families where that's like, you know, that's just devastating and that's not the situation we're in. But yeah, things things can be tough. So it's good to appreciate when, uh, you know, the advantages you have or the, you know, the comforts. Um, exactly for it to be like for it to be an annoyance that you know there's this like extra bill not something that like keeps you up at night right you know? yeah it really is a privilege yeah it really and I, is. I wish it wasn't that way because it's like it's you know having a baby shouldn't like it's something that we should be encouraging in the society not like making it be like a hell of a year where you have to figure out a way to make another 10k just to deliver the baby right That's crazy yeah for sure um so what's uh what's Fabiano's newest trick? I mean, so he's eleven months old. Is he uh talking or walking at all yet? He's working on walking. I mean, he is. It's like the favorite time I've had so far. Um, yeah, he's he's hiding things. He's getting really smart. So nice. like you know. He'll, get, he'll take a remote, which is, like, something he's not supposed to have, and, like, he'll, like, hide it from us so, he so we, we don't see that he has it. I right. love that. 
Yeah, my I mean my uh, my youngest is a little older. She's one and a half, but yeah, she'll take something and she'll just try to run away. She'll just make a run for the door if she knows that she's not supposed to have it. It's uh, quite amusing. Um, so, what, what are you going to teach Fabian first? Are you going to teach him poker or chess first, Jen? Well, definitely chess because you know poker requires. Uh, you know, poker, it requires an understanding of money to play, really. And I don't think children should really have to think about money for a little while. I mean, it's like, I think it's great if they don't, I, I think once they're in junior high school and high school, they should learn more about finance and money. But I, I think that um, before that, it's wonderful to have a world of like knights and bishops and, you know, not dollars and cents. That makes sense. Yeah. And that, that reminds me of a funny story about uh, your mom that I know you've told about like, when Greg and I and other people were getting into poker and it was exploding, uh, you know, around around the world and especially in the chess world. And you, in contrast to everyone, everyone else's mother, including my own, she she would ask you, like, why aren't you playing poker? Yeah. Yeah. She was like, what are you doing? It's free money. I remember her telling me that. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Um so when your kid gets older, like your general philosophy about poker, like would you encourage him to play at say 18? Like, or uh, like, at, do you think it's a good activity to introduce kids and, you know, kids in general, but also games players uh, too? I think yes, if you can get a sense of whether or not, because, you know, gambling is like uh, drinking and I don't, and poker doesn't have to be a gambling game. It could be like an intellectual math finance game. But of course, there's also the potential to make it into a gambling game. So you should get a sense of whether or not your child has that instinct. And if they do, that's like something you probably don't want to push them towards. Uh, You know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough not to have the uh, addictive personality when it comes to alcohol or drugs or gambling. But I can kind of relate to it because I do have a bit of an addictive personality when it comes to sugar. So I, I can understand it. Like if there's like, for instance, if there's a plate of brownies across the room, like it's difficult for me to think about anything else sometimes. Like literally, like I know it sounds like a joke, but it's like seriously like annoying because it's like on one hand, it's like delicious when you get them, but it's also just like, it's like it's hard for me to think straight. And I, as I understand, like people who are alcoholics or gamblers are often like their brains kind of work the same way. Like they're, they just like can't stop like thinking about that compulsion when it's around. And, you know, they have to like, you know, go through all of it until like the money is gone or the bottles are gone. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that it's like my vice is like pretty manageable. Right. You know, but it's a. Uh, yeah, it's it's something that if you have it, you probably shouldn't go into poker. So, are you taking stock of Fabi's personality? How how's he how's he shaping up as as an eleven month old? I think he's well. You know, obviously, obviously, I think he's going to be very. He's very happy, and he seems to be very expressive, which is which is wonderful. Nice. So he like even when he was like just like a, a couple months old, he would have all these different facial expressions. So, and he would kind of interact with people. I think a lot for a child his age. It's difficult because you know, of course, I think he's like the best ever. Right. Like I can't imagine a hu- human being as wonderful as him. I mean, so. the po- possible exception <laughs> of my kids, but yeah. yeah. Other than that, I agree. No, it's funny that you mentioned the expressive thing because I remember like Greg used to always say in, in in your tournaments, like if you wanted to see how your games were, your chess games, you could walk in and you didn't have to look at the position. You could just look at your face. So I guess we know where Fabi gets it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And my dad as well. 
That's interesting. I don't think of your dad quite the same way, but I could. I guess I. I didn't see him in combat that much. He was already in uh, Grandmaster Draw mode when I <laughs> when I came across him. Okay, so Jen, I think I only have a couple more topics for you. Believe it or not. Um, oh, okay. One of them is uh, in in Chess Bitch. You you told some great stories about like uh, you know back in those days, especially. But I mean, you continue to be well traveled. But you got to go to so many interesting places, from like Istanbul to Hawaii and uh, Budapest and many places in between. So, do you have any like standout memories looking back now, or like uh, particularly memorable stories from your time when you were like? traveling a lot for chess? Yeah, uh, I remember Istanbul being uh, really one of my favorite places. And I, um, the food there is just like so amazing. And like the music, uh, just going to a restaurant and like hearing this, this wonderful music and just everywhere getting like these fresh vegetables and delicious meat. Um, that was probably one of my favorite places. Uh, Curacao also I used to play in the Curacao Chess International every year that was uh, a phenomenal um, experience every year yeah it's one of the great things about chess being able to travel to all these places especially for children being able to see all these different places and uh, experience different cultures and see how uh, everybody how you can interact with all these different people of different ages and, and cultures I, I, that's probably the, the one of the major things that I, I, I think is good for kids in chess, actually. Yeah, hopefully they, they get time to actually do that. Um, and I know it can be hard to balance like playing and traveling. But uh, but I mean, I feel like just just seeing all the kids from different cultures has value, even if you don't. Obviously, ideally, you'd get to like go experience it and see the sights. But just like the way it connects people generally um, has, you know really can can alter your life the way it changes your perspective yeah especially now it's probably even better because people like as soon as they they make these friends they connect with them on facebook and instagram and now it's like really easy to connect with their friend for life whereas before you might kind of like lose touch and just see each other at like the next tournament and if somebody stopped playing chess you might like permanently lose touch with them whereas now i imagine these relationships just like really last forever which is which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we actually just had a big success in uh, Italy. Jennifer Yu won the bronze medal in the World Girls Championship. I mean, it just seems like these days the American kids are, are really just crushing it almost every year. Yeah. And it was that was one thing that was interesting about looking back over chess pitches, like how much the, the chess culture generally, but the U.S. chess culture in particular has, has changed over these, you know, I guess it's been 12 years. But 12 years doesn't seem like that long. But chess, I mean, like I remember, it was it seemed much more fringe uh, at the time of, of your writing Chess Pitch. Yeah, it's really going fantastically. I mean, there's so many positive forces working in our direction, like with the Scholastic programs all over the country and then all of the resources in St. Louis between the World Chess Hall of Fame, which I'm on the board of, which is basically like a museum devoted to chess. And then the uh, the chess club in St. Louis and, you know, U.S. Ch- chess is growing again. And Magnus Carlsen winning the world championship is also, I think, was also huge um, impetus to getting more more press and interest in chess in, in the United States. So because he visits here a lot for promotions and stuff. Right. So, yeah, it's just everything seems to be going in our direction. And uh, I, I think it's going to continue for a little while. 
Nice. That's that's good to hear. And do you think um so people ask me this and I'm I'm no Jen Shahadi, but people ask me, you know, as it relates to my kids. So do you think that like if if Fabi shows an interest, do you think you would like encourage him to play competitive chess or like how will you approach that or have you thought about it much yet? Yeah, I think it would be cool. I mean, it's just so exciting to see his mind develop. So to see him like play chess, that would be like really thrilling. And I think it's somebody who understands that short term winning and losing isn't really that important. Uh, I I will be I will avoid being like a crazy chess parent. Oh, man. (laughs) I've been watching my four year old Henry. He's he just picked up chess kid shout out again to Mike Klein. Um, And he plays mainly the computer because he he doesn't really want to wait for like other kids. But there's this one computer that's like the worst chess player I've ever seen in my life um, called QWERTY. It just hangs. It plays like no human, like even like, you know, I've taught tons of beginner kids, but none of them hang their pieces as quickly as QWERTY. So Henry just like instantly moves and I cannot get him to slow down. And I see now like how hard it like this is my first experience as a parent seeing like how much harder it is when it's your own kid than someone else. Cause it's, uh, it's tough to watch even when he's winning. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Even now I can see like that Fabian physically has the ability to walk, but he doesn't really want to. He just, cause it's like easier just to like crawl from A to B. Right. And I have to resist my temptation. Cause you know, I'm going to the, the London chess classic coverage, um, in a few days. So I like, don't want him to walk when I'm gone. But then <laughs> at the funny. same time, I'm like, it really doesn't matter. And, you know, I shouldn't like get in this habit of like trying to force something that's not happening because in a way it's also very logical. Like, you know, if he tries to walk and he's not really ready for it, he might fall. And if he, he knows a hundred percent, he can crawl from A to B. So I can't really blame him. And I, I don't think I should like kind of like mess with like the logical progression, but of course, I'm going to be sad. <laughs> right. The the impulse is there. But yeah. 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 You have to resist it. Um, okay. So I think just two more questions, Jen. Um, number one is, uh, so getting back to like memories and stories, I mean, you had quite quite a storied career playing. So do you have like, if you think of like the, the highest high in your time playing, what, what comes to mind? Um, well, you know, team chess is so thrilling. And I remember that we, in Slovenia and Bled, uh, the U.S. team beat the Chinese women's team in a really critical match. I mean, we didn't end up meddling in that event, but I won my game as well. And I, I remember that was just, like, such a thrilling experience with, like, Irina being on the team and being such a good friend of mine at the time. And then, of course, winning my first U.S. women's championship, where I also earned an IM norm, was just, like, a... Uh, uh, like an incredible, incredible highlight for me because, you know, w- both times that I won the championship, I wasn't really the best player. So I felt like I rose to the occasion and like outperformed, which is always a great feeling. Like I said earlier about writing, like, you know, being able to perform and do bring a better version of yourself. Uh, I think that I was a bit better at tournaments like the U S championship because my, um, my preparation skills were pretty good. So as compared to like playing a game 30 at the Marshall or like the world open, I was, uh, I was like maybe a little bit less good at that. And then a little bit better at playing in a tournament where I had the ability to prepare for my opponent. So what was good about it? You were good at guessing what they were going to play or just generally. Yeah. And obviously this was now it's like more elaborate and even, even players and like, 
even players in smaller events tend to have like coaches because it's like easier to network with different coaches online. So I, I compared to what people do now, I'm sure my approach was rudimentary, but I, I felt that I was better at it than my opponents. Yeah. Nice. And that makes sense because I'm also like really good at studying in general, like studying poker, like studying, um, for school and stuff like that. It's just like, it's a separate skill, you know? Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, we've talked, we've mentioned you're super competitive. I mean, obviously all chess players are like to, to reach your level, they have to be competitive, but maybe something a little extra kicked in in that regard too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So Jen, we know you're, you're headed to St. Louis to cover the London chess classic. What else do you have coming up? Like what's your, what's your schedule look like in the next few months? Just out of curiosity. Well, you know, on a on a when I'm in Philly, I I do a lot of work um, on the U.S. Chess Federation website, and then I also do uh, a lot of quality time with Little Fabi. And but the next big event after London will be, um, besides our our much awaited get together right. in late December. Yes, <laughs> I I have a I have a poker ch- chip chess set for you, by the way. Oh, so. nice! I have a present for you too. Um, yeah, but we'll, we'll uh, keep Can't it a surprise. Wait. Yeah, Dick, no, that, s- set your expectations low, but <laughs> but, uh, right. but I think you'll like it. I can't wait. And then um, in January, I'm going to the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure. Oh, fun. With nice. the whole family, actually. So that should be nice. Oh, excellent. All right. So- sounds good to me. Okay. Well, Jen, I mean, I think people know how to reach you generally. You're, you're pretty active on Twitter. Um, any other thing I should put up in the show description? No, oh, no. Just, uh, yeah, Twitter and Instagram is probably where I'm, like, the most active with uh, my updates. And, um, you know, since we did talk in the beginning of the show about the London Chess Classic, perhaps a link to where people can watch that. Yes. You know? Yeah, uh, for sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, well, Jen, thanks for, for finally coming on to Perpetual Chess. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, too. You're doing so well with this. Oh, thank you. Thank and your you. interviews, like, they seems like your skills at interviewing are getting better all the time. So I hope so. I mean, at the beginning, they kind of had nowhere to go but up. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great though. It's really it's, it's and people love being on the show, so that's important too because I feel like it's good for the chess world. People yeah, that, are, like, I mean that's the goal. There's so many people like I mean chess players. They they work their whole lives at, at these games. I mean they they're locked in a room studying their whole lives. So some you know people need to shine a light on their accomplishments and let people know like what they're like. So hopefully uh, this does that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I hope. We, I also think at some point you should come to St. Louis and do like some kind of live show because I feel like you still haven't been there, which is crazy. Yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, there's um. There's a few possibilities for live shows, but uh, but yeah, I need to get to St. Louis for sure. So last year I had a work conflict, but this year I'm, I'm, I'll try to circle it on my calendar early and see if I can make it out there. Awesome. Cool. All right, Jen. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, it's late for both of us. Our children wake up early. so. Uh. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good night and thanks for having me on. Thanks to everyone who supports Perpetual Chess. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Donations from listeners make a huge difference and make Perpetual Chess a lot more sustainable. Special shout out to my Patreon Perpetual Partners. They are Johnny McMenamin, Todd Bryant, Greg Shahadi, Jen Scream, Timothy Ha, Tatia Vabramahan, Paul Sweeney, Jennifer Shahadi, Pascal Charbonneau, Zhao Cheng, Kelly Palmer, Matthew Tedesco, Gary Andrews, Krishna Galapakrishnan, Ricky Grahava, 
Chris Flanagan, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Rob Lazorchek, Jennifer Valens, Tim Seymour, and Chris Wayne Scott. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.